Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I remember uh, being maybe three or four years old and uh, some friend of the family came and said to me as a four-year-old, so young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, actor. And uh, my dad said, uh, it's pronounced doctor. He denies it, but my mum was there, so she's, she's my witness. So, the, you know, my passion to, to be involved um, in this world was there from a really early age, but there was no real support. There was no route that I could see through to it. Um, and that came through after having some life experience. And I'm, I'm very grateful that it came that way around, I think. That's Sanjeev Bhaskar, an actor better known in the United Kingdom than the United States. According to one source, he's the 277th most influential person in Britain. He also happens to be the chancellor of a major university. In the U.S., you can catch him as the co-star in Masterpiece Theater's drama series Unforgotten. Sanjeev and I have been friends for years, ever since he invited me to join him in the living room of his fictional parents. This is so great. I'm so glad to be talking to my pal. <laughs> I'm over the moon. I cannot tell you. I can, there, there are indescribable feelings. I've kind of, I have feelings that I've never felt before. I don't know what they are. I've never felt them. I'll, ha I'll have to look them up afterwards. <laughs> we met so the audience knows if there's anybody listening, and they, they, they should know that we met on your wonderful program called The Kumars at Number 42. That's right. Had that wonderful premise that you had always wanted to be a talk show host and your parents set you up in the backyard with your own talk show. <laughs> and That's you had right. these cheeky questions, like you kept asking me things like, are you rich? Which is <laughs> like the, the epitome of bad interviewing. Did you draw on your experience as a person being interviewed? Like, did you think of the worst questions to ask your guests? Uh, actually, no. I mean, I had the idea um, before I started acting. And, and it came from uh, many years earlier into introducing a girlfriend to my parents. And I was quite nervous about it. And, and I brought her home and I said, uh, parents, this is my girlfriend, Jeanette. Uh, Jeanette, this is, these are my parents. And my father said, uh, pleased to meet you, Jeanette. How much does your father earn? And, <laughs> and I said, but dad, you can't, you can't, you can't ask that. And he said, why not? It's only a question. And I said, yeah, but you know, it's not the right. He said, she doesn't have to answer it if she doesn't want to. And then my mother stepped in and I thought, oh, there's the voice of reason. And uh, my mum said, um, love, ignore him. Jeanette, uh, and ignore Sanjeev as well, because he, he just can't handle rejection. And this was in the first 30 seconds. And when I started acting, um, I remember thinking, wow, I wonder if I ever get to meet anyone famous, any of my heroes or anything like that. And then I thought, well, what would happen if I took them home to meet my parents? And I thought it would be no different. And that was the basis of it. And really, it was because I don't think I'd seen, uh, I'd seen talk shows where uh, the host was uh, playing a character, but I'd never seen a family. 
And I thought that there was something about family dynamics where, you know, the, the son that I played was egotistical. And- yeah, and the idea that you had your mother and father on the couch as sort of co-hosts. That's right. Well, I, what I figured was that if you had a family, um, they would ask the questions that were important to them. So the father was interested in in finance and business and how much do you earn? And uh, the mother was interested in relationships. How many kids have you got? And the grandmother was the loose cannon. And I'd always kind of thought in programs that I'd seen, uh, it was always the oldest character that was seen as the dumb one, the one that couldn't keep up, who couldn't catch up, who was out of time. And I thought, well, I'm going to reverse that and have an old lady be the most knowing character in the program. You mentioned a couple of times that you thought of this, for instance, before you were thinking of becoming an actor, before you became an actor. You became an actor at the age of 35? Yeah, around 35, yeah. The thing that strikes me about people who start acting later is that they have a naturalness about them. They, they seem like real people automatically because they've lived life before they started to try to portray life. And that seems to be, I don't have that advantage. I was carried on stage when I was six months old. <laughs> so I still mostly play a baby really well. <laughs> but I, but I, did you find that your life experience helped you? I mean, you, you don't have to think your way through so many things because you've been there. Yes, yeah, certainly that, that aspect is there. But I think the biggest aspect is that by the age of 35, any notions of what the external world of acting may bring, the lifestyle, the, all that stuff, that had gone. I think that had I, for me personally, I think had I kind of achieved great success at 18 or 20 or even younger now with, with people vlogging on, on YouTube and being influencers and stuff like that, then I think I wouldn't have had the life experience to know that all of it was meaningless uh, and really would never be meaningful. And so I think by the age of 35, that those notions of wanting to be a star or all that kind of stuff, I think had disappeared from me. So I think that uh, what I was left with was uh, a yearning to work um, and to have a long career. It was that, and, and how fortunate I was to, to be doing what I loved uh, doing. I remember uh, being maybe three or four years old and uh, some friend of the family came and said to me as a four-year-old, so, young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, actor. And my dad said, uh, it's pronounced doctor. And uh, <laughs> it didn't work, but uh, he denies it. But my mum was there, so she's, she's my witness. So, the, you know, my passion to, to be involved um, in this world was there from a really early age. But there was no real support. There was no route that I could see through to it. Um, and that came through after having some life experience. And I'm, I'm very grateful that it came that way around, I think. The most impressive thing to me, aside from your, your great talent and your success as an actor, is that you have an interest in education that you act on. And you are the chancellor of the University of Sussex at Brighton. That's right. What was the audition like for that? Uh, that was crazy because the chancellor before me was Lord Richard Attenborough. Right. And he'd been chancellor there for, I think, about 10 years. And it was a call out of the blue, actually. 
uh, uh, and the vice chancellor, who is the head of the university, came to see me and he said, look, with Lord Attenborough is going to be retiring and we're looking for a new chancellor. Uh, would you be interested? And I said, well, I, you know, it, the, it's the greatest honour to be asked. I mean, obviously, I think this is the first and last time we'll ever meet, but what an honour to be asked. And, and he said, apparently, that swung it. And they wanted somebody that would be able to relate to the students, to the graduates, to the undergraduates. Uh, and really, my purpose is at graduation is to hand out the, the, the degrees and do a speech and keep it uplifting and funny and positive and, and admiring of them. And it's, it's one of the most wonderful gifts I've ever received because the, the days are, they're not about me. They're about all these incredible young people. I, it's, it's incredibly uh, exhilarating to be in a room which has that much potential and that much hope. It's an extraordinary feeling. And so you have, uh, I think across a week, there may be six or 7,000 students that I meet and uh, actually, very early on, you know, the, the graduation ceremonies in, in uh, Britain uh, tend to be quite kind of staid affairs, a lot of pomp and stir circumstance. You know, there's a procession in and everyone's in their robes and, um, you know, there's usually an incredibly dull and boring speech that's done beforehand. And then if you're a parent or you're a family member or a friend, it's relevant for about 30 seconds when your kid goes up to collect their degree. And I remember thinking after the first year, actually that, I mean, how do we make it more relevant for everyone? And so I started to say to the students, which I do to this day, and this is my 11th year, going into my 12th year, uh, at every ceremony, I said, this is, this is your day. I mean, you express yourself, your joy, whatever you want to do when you come up on the stage, and I'll go with it. It's, it's about you. And, uh, and since then, you know, it's, the handshakes have turned mainly into hugs, uh, but there's high fives. And if somebody dances on, I'll dance with them. Um, somebody used their mortarboard, their hat as a frisbee. Uh, it's kind of, anything goes. It's fine. It's your day. It's your moment. Take it. I saw the talk you gave this year to the graduates, which had to be virtual. Right. As I remember, you encouraged them to value how lucky they are. But what what did what did you have? Maybe I'm I'm not interpreting it right. What did you have in mind when you talked about luck? It struck me, particularly this year, particularly across this pandemic, that a lot of people uh, concluded their own position and their own situation, uh, depending on how much misfortune they felt they were experiencing, and it seemed to me that those people who felt fortunate, who were in the same physical situation as the unfortunate person, um, handled it better. And I started to think about what that meant uh, for me. Uh, that's, my, that's always got to be my starting point. And I kind of realized, actually, that I, I felt really lucky. And there was a point at which and I tried to figure out what that was based on. And again, I, I've, something I've said to the students before, which is that basing your good fortune on any kind of monetary value is just the worst thing you can do because, you know, one day you got it, another day you haven't. So I realized that what I was picking were the experiences I've had. I looked at uh, subconsciously my journey. And uh, this, this is absolutely true. Um, Mira and I were driving 
back in sort of February, March, when the first lockdown happened here. And uh, Mira was, she was saying, you know, she was worried about the future. She said, we don't know when, I mean, theatres are closed. We don't know when they're going to open safely. Uh, All filming had stopped. And she said, well, you know, shouldn't we plan? And I said, we can plan a bit. And then there was silence. And I looked at her and I said, you know, we're friends with Alan Alder. And she said, what's that got to do with it? I said, everything, everything. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's kind of like, it's one of the most extraordinary things in my life. And, I, and that is something that, I mean, you can stop being friends with me, but, you, you know, the, what will not change was the fact that we are or had been friends. And that was such an incredible moment of uh, uh, good fortune for me. Well, as I read that, there's always something to be grateful for, even if it's being friends with me. We all have something to feel gratitude for. And I find that, I wonder if you feel the same way, I find that I can feel gratitude in general. I don't have to be grateful to a person or an entity or a being. It's a, it's a kind of relating to what I see in my environment. I walk out and I see the branch of the tree against the blue sky. And if it's rained the night before, the sky is clear. And it just strikes me as a, a wonderful, lucky moment I have to be in contact with something so simple and beautiful as that. And it's out there all the time. That element of being very present that you're talking about becomes really important because otherwise people are worrying about a future that hasn't happened yet or living in a past uh, that has brought you here but also not doesn't necessarily have a bearing on the future. So that moment of being really present I think is tricky and I think it's trickier now than it's ever been. To me, it's, it's like a dog who has found a spot of sunlight on the rug and just lies there contented. You don't have to figure out what's how it all got that way, but there's that little spot of sunlight, and that feels pretty good. But you got to find the spot of sun on the rug. Yeah, <laughs> but it's again, it's about it's about being present and being in the moment, and uh, and I think that we are not brought up to think that way. You know, the whole thing about the future, planning for the future, worrying about the future. I think it's right to be prepared. Uh, but also you can lose sight of your present uh, all the time. You can ruin your present by kind of worrying about the future. And those bits of the future you can change. I mean, something that, again, I say to the students uh, at Sussex is that, you know, you are constantly defined by what you do next. You know, who you are is what you do next. So don't define yourself by a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. I had a bad decade once. I came out of it. So it's that thing of kind of constantly kind of going back to that present state and saying, what is my next decision? The next decision is who I am. I think you've devoted some real time and energy to diversity in the culture how would you describe the state of diversity in in the world as you know it? You know, the, the, the questions about diversity have and multiculturalism have always troubled me because I think my argument has always been really basic. Planet Earth is diverse. Uh, you know, the, the planet is multicultural. 
again, something I've, I've said to the students at Sussex is that I, I feel very uh, lucky that I have met complete idiots from every age, every gender, every religion, every country, every political persuasion. It's, uh, but I've met extraordinary people from all of those groups too. And so merely belonging to a, a club, uh, to my mind, doesn't give anybody a, a moral high ground. And also, I, and I very rarely talk about you know, racist experiences that I had growing up here, mainly because I think there are people who've had you know, far more traumatic experiences than me. And uh, I don't want to draw kind of you know, attention or, or sympathy away from their situations. But um, from very early on, I kind of realized that when I looked at my heroes, whether they were sporting heroes or creative heroes, uh, they came from everywhere. They were, they were Jewish writers and they were kind of wasp writers and comedians and, and there were black comedians and black actors and athletes of every color. And then when I looked at the comedy, I was uh, drawn to like the Marx Brothers or Peter Sellers, people like that, they were Jewish. And so I, I at that point, you know, the, the, the Muslim kind of sportsman, I mean, there was no point at which I could look at a race and say, they are all this thing. It, it struck me as ridiculous. And uh, and the same with women. It was kind of, I, you know, I had women that I really admired artistically and creatively. So I couldn't then think, well, therefore women as a group uh, can be uh, degraded to something else. It's bonkers. It's bonkers to think that there is a group of people who have contributed so much um, that could possibly be regarded uh, as secondary in any way. And I, ex I extend that to absolutely everybody because my heroes have come from everywhere. So, you know, the, for me, the issue of diversity isn't, you know, the lack of diversity is, is a weakness. And I think that, you know, the strengths come from those people with, because diverse people come from diverse cultures, bring diverse ideas. And that's what motors us forward as the human race are, are, are new ideas. If we had the same old ideas, we wouldn't have shifted from, a, you know, cavemen. It's been shown in many studies that when corporations are more diverse in their executive suite, the, co the company does better. And it always amazed me that if that's true, wouldn't companies notice that and move toward more diversity? The, the, the rigidity seems to be more powerful in, in their decision-making than, than the facts. It's a no-brainer, right? I mean, it's, you know, whether you want kind of diversity of ideas moving forward, uh, having a, any kind of corporation that has that kind of backing to it is bound to do better. It, it, it has to, doesn't it? I mean, unless you're kind of, you know, one thought company. So, yeah, people kind of paint themselves into these kind of boxes. And then that then determines their thinking towards diversity and, and different cultures. And, you know, America is... is the prime example, the best example, uh, possibly in history, of people coming to a land and contributing to it, and contributing to its kind of, you know, power and its creativity and its energy, and so the idea that that should suddenly stop is meaningless to me. When we come back, Sanjeev Bhaskar tells me about his work on the crime drama Unforgotten and the immediate connection he forged with his co-star. And we talk about how important it is to have that connection 
I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldous Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Sanjeev Bhaskar. How about uh, the representation of minorities in entertainment? On, on your hit show with Nicola Walker, wonderful actress, and it's great to see you two play together. You are of Asian descent. Is that referenced much in the series? It's hardly referenced at all. And in fact, the character is actually half Hindu, half Muslim as well, uh, which is not a combination that happens too often. Um, It didn't need to be referenced. And I think that, you know, whatever I bring subconsciously, culturally, I think has seeped through to the the character. I mean, the writing on the page is where you start with and the writing is is brilliant on on Unforgotten. And one of the reasons that it appealed to me... uh, which people uh, I'm glad have commented on is that empathy is at the heart of the series. You know, it's a police procedural series about murders that happened, you know, sometimes decades ago, uh, cold case murders, of which, you know, there have been quite a few. But uh, people commented on how empathy was at the heart of this particular program. And I think that starts with the writing, but also between Nicola and myself as well, just as human beings. Uh, we connected on that level. So when we are kind of questioning suspects or we are questioning um, people who have been impacted by the crime, I think inherently um, an empathetic and compassionate nature has to be there um, um, given who we are and given the style of the program. And I think that's perhaps what makes it, I mean, it sounds arrogant to say a cut above the others, but certainly perhaps marks it as different uh, from the others, you can say you can say cut above. I mean, I can't cut above. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it, it strikes me that when you talk about empathy between you and Nicola, that that seems to me to be an essential ingredient 
for a good performance, for two good performances to occur. And by empathy in that case, I mean, I don't mean compassion. I just mean being able to read the other person to see what's going on behind their eyes while you're working with them. And a bond occurs that's almost impossible for the audience to avoid watching. You want mm-hmm. so much to to see what's going to happen between these two people are so well connected. You know, we're we're engaged by their engagement. Did you you say you had that immediately with her? I remember when we did the very first scene in the first season, and it was a walking and talking scene. And it was the first scene of the episode and it was the first thing that we shot. And I think the walk and talk was about a minute, maybe, um, which we did maybe four or five times, different size shots, different angles. And after about the fourth one, uh, I suddenly turned around to Nicola. We were talking about something and I said, this is crazy. I feel like I've known you like 20 years. And she said, no, I feel exactly the same. And so we just connected really, really quickly, which was, which was wonderful. It just made our working life that much better as well. And, you know, she's become a friend, which is, which is great. Um, but I think, yeah, going back to your point about actors, I think that in order to connect with someone, I think you have to find that empathy. Otherwise, I think people can see that you're faking it. I'm, I'm always surprised when I hear of those tales of a movie that I really love, and then I find out that the the two lead actors hated each other. You know, this is funny. This happened to me. I did a play with Diana Sands called The Owl and the Pussycat. We did it on Broadway. And we got credit for great ensemble acting, when in fact the two of us, we were both young, and the two of us were desperately competitive with the other person, trying to steal the play from the other person. Right. And it's funny how sometimes that seems to work. You and I were talking in an email exchange the other day about how some actors are deliberately competitive with the rest of the actors, right? What did you hear somebody in an interview say that? Yeah, I I, I think, I mean, it may not have been, but I, I, I vaguely remember reading something about Dustin Hoffman actually being, he wants to be the best he wants to be the best on the set and on the stage. And it gets slightly annoyed if there are other people there who are really, really good because he wants to be the best. But at the same time, he understands that unless they bring their A game, it's not going to bring out the best in him. This is so interesting because it seems to be an actual theory. When I was doing a play directed by Mike Nichols, he said, why don't, you, why don't you both compete with each other a little bit? See who can be better than the other. I know this is a strange thing. Maybe he was trying to bring out what happened between me and Diana Sands <laughs> when we, we were competing. But I've worked with people who are, are not empathetic at all and on stage, which is, uh, which is really, really hard work. It's, uh, I mean, the, this is the joy of I've not played a villain yet. Uh, have you? Yeah, you've played a couple, haven't you? You've About half of, of the ones I've played have been flawed people. With, with with a villain, you don't have to empathize. That's that's the great release of as an actor playing a villain. You don't have to get on with anybody. You don't have to think about what they're thinking. <laughs> you couldn't care less. But you know, being in love with somebody that you really don't respect on stage or on screen is re- that's real acting, or even um, just an exchange of dialogue where the person isn't really talking to you. They're they're speaking in a way they decided last night 
that they would play that right. line. And they're not, they're not responding to how you're playing your lines. And you have to go into that other mode of talking to them as if they're talking to you. Right. It's a very, it's a strange, when that happens in life too, you'll be talking to somebody who has a line of talk about politics or religion and you can't, you can't bring it down to earth sometimes. It's hard. Well, it was always really noticeable in, in uh, bad uh, interviewers, wasn't it? When they would ask a question and the other person would say, well, that was the time I was kind of attacked and bitten by a clown. And, you know, the person just kind of carries on with the next question they had. So how did you feel when you won the Emmy? You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> okay, that thing about being bitten by a clown didn't grab your attention. <laughs> As you shoot more, you're planning to shoot more on Forgotten, right? We've just finished uh, season four. We were kind of interrupted by um, the lockdown. So we, we started filming uh, at the beginning of the year, and then we had six months off before we came back. So how do you do it? How do you, how do you shoot with still the chance that people might infect one another? Actually, the, the, the company, the production company, were really good. Uh, we had uh, two COVID tests per week. Uh, and the area, uh, the filming area was zoned. So the red zone was was the acting area, area the active area. And so you just had the actors, uh, minimal crew. Uh, they were the only ones allowed there. Then the blue zone, which was outside of that, had the director and the um, script supervisor and people like that. And then the zone outside of that had makeup and wardrobe, etc. And so there were very limited people allowed in each zone. So when we left the red zone, the filming zone, we had to put our masks on. And then even the within the cast, we were put into small bubbles or cohorts. So uh, if you were in the same cohort uh, as a fellow actor, you could be within uh, six feet of them uh, or three feet. And every other actor had to be at least six feet away. So in terms of the planning that went into shooting some of these scenes, and as you know, Alan, I mean, you, we shoot out of sequence. So, you know, in some of the sequences, it may be me in February getting out of a car and knocking on a door, and then in October being let in. And uh, so to, to, to keep that feeling connected and real, and obviously to shoot around the fact that I'd put on 40 pounds, was uh, a challenge for them, I think. <laughs> the problem of shooting during COVID has uh, plagued me as much as the plague. I don't want to uh, get into a situation where I'm shooting a close-up and I have to be two feet away from the other person. So I'd like to put in my contract if I ever shoot during COVID. No close-ups, no over-the-shoulders, 20 feet apart, Use a long lens. It's up to you to make it look like we're close. <laughs> I thought we'd, we'd be doing all of our uh, scenes in close-ups. I thought that's the only way, just single shots of everybody. I, but I think, you know, it's, you know, actors are people, and uh, as were the crew. And uh, so what everyone needed was reassurance. And I think that's, there was a clarity, uh, which uh, <laughs> has been little seen in various governments uh, across the world. But there was a clarity about the rules. And so everybody kind of understood why we were doing what we were doing, why we needed to do it. And if we followed these, these rules, we were able to continue working. 
And so everybody fell in line with that. You know, it was, there was nobody saying, well, you know, this is an attack on my civil liberty if I can't be within four feet and, and have a little spittle when I speak. I mean, it's, uh, it was, this is how we carry on working. And I think that, uh, you know, as a kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, as a metaphor for, you know, how everything else was not being run as well, it was really stark. And uh, so, you know, it was, it was a joy to be with people going to work. As always, when we get together, I want to talk more, but I'm getting signals that we're reaching the end of our time. And we always end our show with seven quick questions. Are you game for the questions? The questions might be quick. You think the answers are going to be quick? <laughs> First question. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, wow. Wow, so many things. I really wish I understood. I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. I really wish I understood what animals were thinking. And sometimes you look at a dog that's staring at something and, look at, and you kind of go, oh, I wonder what he's thinking. What is he thinking? We've got a cat. And we're constantly saying, what is she thinking? I was with a dog last night and I was wondering what she was thinking, especially it was a big uh, Doberman, beautiful dog. And I was wondering what she was thinking as she lunged for my crotch. Ah, uh, that's the, uh, that's the, I liked your early funny stuff. That's a review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Ah, oh gosh. I think it's, a, it, well, first of all, you have to know that your facts are right before you correct them. Um, but I think it's to acknowledge what they're saying first. So along the lines of kind of, yeah, oh, okay. How did you get to that? Oh, okay. Oh, I see how you got there. Um, I've heard that before. Actually, that's not uh, absolute. You, there are kind of there are uh, there are maybe a few things that you didn't know, and then if they persist, then of course, then you just tell them they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a good approach. I think. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> well, there's two that come to mind. One was. Uh, is it true you married your grandmother uh, when I married Mira? That was, that's a pretty strange question. The other one was actually when I first started, which was uh, because it was a, a, it was sketch comedy, um, a sketch comedy show that I did. And somebody said, uh, so this is uh, written and acted by people of Indian origin, Indians. And I said, yeah. And, and he said, are Indians funny? I said, yeah, we've been funny for about 5,000 years. We just didn't need to tell you that. Um, so I think those are the two strangest questions, I think. How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> well, I don't know. How do you stop me, Alan? I think the thing is, I think you and I are both compulsive talkers, but I like to think that we're both compulsive listeners. And, and also we're compulsive interesting talkers. And actually what I think about it now, when, whenever we've kind of got together... My sense memory is of you and me constantly talking and then Mira and Arlene saying one sentence and bringing down the house. <laughs> yes, is, right. Is, have you got a different sense memory of it? That's, that's me talking for 10 minutes, you talking for 12, me talking for another 11, Arlene saying one thing, which becomes the funniest thing. Well, you have to keep in mind that the straight line is just as important as the punchline. <laughs> It's <laughs> right. 12-minute setup. Yeah, right, right. How do you, Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table, when, if that ever comes back again, 
and uh, you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a real conversation with that person? Well, if it's the compulsive talker, then then you don't, really. Uh, that's... Uh, <laughs> um, but otherwise, yeah, hi. Well, that's enough about me. I think usually about, um, you know, how they... What connects us? It's, it's usually the host that connects us or the food will connect us. And so those are two, I think, good kickoff places. For me, it's always to try to get somebody to talk about something they're passionate about because actually people talking about their passions are almost always interesting, whether I share that passion or not. There's a language of passion, which is somebody talking about plumbing because they're so passionate about plumbing. And it's, it's, it can be mesmerizing. <laughs> now I'm going back to your how do you stop a compulsive talker? And I'm thinking the other thing that you can do is to just stop, stop them for a second and say, did you, stop, did you hear that? And then there's enough of a gap for you to kind of change the subject. Next to last question, what gives you confidence? Oh, you see, I don't think I felt confident until I was 40. Um, I think I had the skills to come across as confident, but I think those, those were just social skills I had. I think I have people around me that will tell me the truth about me. And I remember saying to a friend of mine who's now deceased, and he, he died very young, but I remember saying to him at one point, I figured what the best thing you could ever say to me is, the healthiest thing you could ever say to me is, and that is, I don't believe you. Because if you say that, then my first port of call is going to be, do I believe me? Because I have the ability to fool myself. And if I check in with myself and I think I do believe me, then it gives me an opportunity to put it across more clearly. And so I think that I have that amongst the people that I regard as close. I think that they're all incredibly empathetic people. And I think that they will tell me the truth about me in the nicest way. Well, I believe you. Last question. <laughs> what book changed your life? Oh, gosh, that's almost impossible. It's two eras, I think. Um, I'm thinking instinctively now. So... I think uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Catch-22, and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I think were the three when I was growing up that had a huge impact. And then when I've got older, there were another three, actually. Conversations with God is a great one. Uh, your book, actually, Things uh, I Overheard While I Was Talking to Myself, I think is a fantastic book. There, was, there are so many things that I, I've taken away from that and then repeated and quoted and and probably claimed as my own, um, uh, that I think those those two, and uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson, which talks about the, the impact of, as they call it, a pile-on on social media, where that can lead. Uh, um, those are the three books, I think, most recently that have had huge impacts. This has been so great. Whether or not we do the podcast again, we ought to get on Zoom again and have some fun. Oh, well, that'd be great. Well, you know, if Arlene and Mira are about, then we should do that. I mean, it feels very strange to, to have a conversation with, with you without red wine and, and chunks of Parmesan. <laughs> I was thinking, what, what's missing? What's missing apart from the kind of physical kind of proximity? And it's that. It's red wine and Parmesan. That's next. Sanjeev, okay. thank you. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. And lots of love to Arlene. Thank you. And to Mira, too. Thank you. 
has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Sanjeev Bhaskar will soon be returning to U.S. television screens as D.C. Sunny Khan in the fourth season of Unforgotten. You can also catch him along with his wife, Mira Sayal, in the recent movie, Yesterday. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Dr. Risa Sperling. She's conducting two of the largest trials ever that seek to prevent Alzheimer's disease. One of the problems is that we um, only recognize Alzheimer's disease often when it's already at a pretty advanced stage. And so if you add to that the people who have mild cognitive impairment and then add the people whom I study, we call preclinical Alzheimer's disease before they have clear symptoms, you're probably talking 15 million people in the United States alone who are at some stage. Um, But I do have high hopes that if we could start treating much earlier, that we could uh, bring that symptomatic number much lower. And of course, that's the stage that's so devastating to people and their families. Risa Sperling, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.